darkness, 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 light, where there is death, life, the source of light, the light of life has come. From the age of 25, when I first graduated from law school, until my late 40s, I worked full-time as a lawyer, engaged in the general practice of law. During those 20-plus years, my partners and I, I usually had three to four partners, we represented hundreds of people in everything from one to three-hour hearings before administrative law judges to multiple-day jury trials. Regardless of the type of the case or the complexity of the case or the issues, the strength of the case was always determined by the evidence. Depending on the nature of the case, the evidence could be anything from eyewitness testimony to circumstantial evidence to expert witness testimony to historical evidence or documentary evidence. Now, as We've been studying the book of John. John is obviously not a lawyer. If you know his past, he's a commercial fisherman. He's one of the disciples of Jesus Christ and one of the first century Jesus historians. We call those four writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, gospel historians. He writes his account, though, of the life of Jesus Christ much like a lawyer presenting evidence to a judge or a jury to prove the validity of Jesus' claims that he was and is the Son of God. Jesus claimed a deity, the Jewish Messiah, the atoning sin sacrifice, to put it in Jewish terms, and the Savior of the world, according to Jesus. Jesus himself recognized and acknowledged that at least for the time that he was on this earth, for the three short years that he did ministry as a Jewish rabbi, that he would constantly be on trial by the Jewish leaders. Chad pointed this out a couple of weeks ago if you were here. Jesus was constantly trying to make his case. He was presenting evidence of his claims to deity and his messiahship throughout his ministry. Jesus and John also knew that others would someday read their words and hear their words and they wanted you and I to have the opportunity to objectively examine the evidence and decide for ourselves what we would do with Jesus. That's the nature of our text this morning as I continue in the same vein we've been in for several weeks in John chapter five, but there's more to it this morning than that. I wanna make more of it than that. As Lee pointed out last week from his text, it's not that Jesus, it's not just that Jesus was on trial in the first century in Palestine in the Roman Empire. There's another sense in which Jesus was then and certainly will be in the future the judge. The judge at the trial of those Jewish leaders themselves who thought they had him on trial. Not only will they be tried and judged by Jesus, but you and I someday will be weighed in the balances as well. They and we, again, have been provided by John and the other gospel writers overwhelming evidence 
If you've read it objectively and studied, the evidence is overwhelming of the validity of Jesus' claims. The issue again, according to Jesus, the most basic question for this morning is this. What are you going to do with all this evidence? How you and I respond to Jesus determines not only how we live this life, but how we will spend eternity. But there's even more. There's something more subtle in today's teachings. Something that Jesus will expound on later in his ministry, but I want to be, us to begin to think about it this morning. It's the application part of the talk this morning. I'll go ahead and spill the beans for you, and we'll get there again in a few minutes. Especially for those of us, and this includes almost all of you in the room this morning, who've already decided that Jesus is God. You've already embraced him as your atoning sin sacrifice and your savior. But he's calling each of us this morning, this week, and every day to join the witnesses I'm going to talk about this morning from the story, John the Baptist, the gospel writers, and live our lives as walking, talking witnesses of who Jesus is. He expects us to testify to the reality of his claims to deity, the power of his Holy Spirit, and the superiority of his value system, and the goodness of his daddy. We do this in a number of ways, by the way we live, by the way we speak, our work ethic, how we play, what we look at, and how we spend our money. You and I are called to live lives that cause other people to see Jesus in us. Spiritual growth and character development take time. I know that. And usually require help from other people. But we ought to be growing each year of our life more Christ-like because of our making every effort as the Bible says in numerous places in the New Testament, to participate with the Holy Spirit in life change. That spiritual growth should come from a deepening experiential relationship from, with Jesus. More on this later, but with that introduction, turn with me if you have a Bible to John chapter five, and I'm gonna pick up where Lee left off last week, verse 31. Jesus is in the midst, I don't know, I guess you could call it a discussion, but we don't have recorded much of the Jewish leaders' words. It's just that the Jewish leaders got upset with Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath. Jesus picked up on that and lit into them. So this is more of a sermon to the Jewish leaders, and Jesus is talking. He says this, if I testify to you about myself, again, you're in the courtroom, and Jesus says, okay, I could go to the witness stand myself and defend myself, and he will throughout the Gospel of John. We'll see him do that. But he says, if I do that, my testimony is not true. Now, understand he's not saying I'm a liar. What he's saying is you're not going to believe me. You won't accept that as truth. But there is another who testifies in my favor. And I know that his testimony about me is true. He could be talking about one of two people. John the Baptist, who he's going to talk about in the next sentence. Or he could be referring to God, the Father. 
Um, but he's going to talk about both of them. So let's just pick up the next sentence. He says to the Jewish leadership, you sent to John. You went out to see John when he was out there baptizing in the wilderness and preaching repentance. And he's testified to the truth. What truth? That Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. He said, not that I have any need to accept human testimony. You see, in this sermon, Jesus is setting himself apart. He's saying, I am God. I don't need human testimony about me. I came from the Father to you. But he said, you accept human testimony, so I offer you as the second witness to the stand. Jesus was the first witness. He's saying, you're going to reject me. I'll bring another witness to the stand. It's John the Baptist. He's one of your own. You know what it said about John the Baptist, that he was the second Elijah, that he was the forerunner. It's all over the Old Testament. Not that I accept human testimony, but I mention it to you leaders that you may be saved. Saved from what? Eternal damnation, that's all. John was a lamp that burned and gave a light, and you chose for a time to enjoy his life. You kind of put up with John. You indulged John, and you accepted his baptism of repentance to some degree. But he said, I've got more evidence than that. I have testimony much weightier than that of John. What about my works, he says? The works the Father has given me to finish. The very works that I am doing testify that the Father has sent me. He's talking, obviously, about his miracles. He's also talking about his authoritative teaching. And the Father who sent me, he has testified himself concerning me. We'll look at that in just a few minutes. How has the Father testified concerning him? There's a number of possibilities here. He said, oh, by the way, <laughs> he's my daddy. You don't live with him. You've never heard his voice personally. You've never seen his form. He's alluding to the fact that he has. Nor do his words dwell in you. They should be dwelling in them. They have access to the Old Testament scriptures for you do not believe the one he sent. What he's saying is, God sent his son. He's walking around these Judean hillsides. He's performing miracles. The forerunner came, just like God said he would. And you don't accept him, so clearly the word of God does not dwell in you. You study the scriptures diligently. In fact, they worship the scriptures rather than the God of the scriptures. Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And to some extent that's true. Why? Because the scriptures, Jesus says, testify about me, referring to himself. Yet you refuse to come to me, the author of life, the one that was back there in Genesis 1 with the Holy Spirit hovering over the waters. The great I am, he'll call himself later, is walking in their midst. And you won't even come to me to receive the life I'm offering to you. Then he goes on this little aside. And he said, I don't accept glory from human beings anyway. I don't need your worship if you don't want to give it to me. But I know you. I know you don't have the love of God in your hearts. He can look inside of them and see it. He's, this is really an indictment. He's acting right now as what Lee talked about last week as the judge. And he's starting to judge them. He said, he said, your words and your thoughts and your deeds and your 
attempt to indict me is actually indicting you. And he's judging them. I've come in my Father's name. You don't accept me. But if someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. He's talking about other people that kind of claim either false messiahs that came about that time. There were several. Or ones that will come in the future. Or other people that are great speakers. How can you believe since you accept glory from one another? You give glory to one another. You slap each other on the back and say, wow, great job. But you don't really seek the favor of the one that comes from God. You don't seek the favor of God. You're not concerned about what God thinks about you, Jim. You're only concerned about what other people think about you, to put it in 21st century terms. Don't live like that. And then he starts to accuse them. Actually, he pulls out their favorite prophet, Moses. And he uses Moses as his prosecuting attorney to, attorney to bring his indictment against these Jewish leaders. He says, but don't think I will accuse you before the Father. Your accuser will be Moses on whom your hopes are set. I'm sure that threw him off guard. What's he talking about? How did he switch to Moses? If you believe Moses, you would believe me, for Moses wrote about me. Much more on that in just a few minutes. But since you don't believe what Moses wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? He's pretty upset with these guys, and he's bringing his case now against them. Let's summarize the six witnesses or the six pieces of evidence that Jesus makes in these 16 verses to make his case for his claims to deity and messiahship. First of all, Jesus' own testimony about himself. Again, Jesus is not saying he's a liar. He's saying the Jewish leaders won't accept his own statements about himself as truthful. He does, however, testify about himself throughout his ministry. He calls himself, Lee covered this passage last week, the Son of Man. That's an Old Testament term from the book of Daniel referring, and the Jews knew it, to Messiah. He says, in plain and simple terms, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Messiah. Leek also pointed out that he gets specific directions. Jesus claims to get specific directions on what to do from God. In other places, he's going to say later that he's the bread of life, that he's the light of the world. He will even say at one point, as I've already stated, that he's the great I am. That's a clear reference in any first century Jew's mind to God, a claim to deity. They tried to stone him for that, by the way. Second piece of evidence, second witness he calls to the stand is John the Baptist. What did John say about him? We'll look at this again in a few minutes. John called Jesus what? The Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. John said he wasn't worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. John also called Jesus the bridegroom. That's a term used for God several times in the Old Testament in relation to Israel as God's bride. John is testifying to Jesus' divine nature. Third piece of evidence, the Father or God himself. Now this could mean several things. The commentators weren't sure, and I'm not either. I'll give you several things it could mean. 
God testifies about Jesus, first of all, through his written word that they had access to and we have access to, coming from the prophets in the Old Testament in hundreds of places. It could also mean the testimony about that Jesus is describing here. All six pieces of evidence really come from the Father. John the Baptist said, I was sent from the Father. It could refer to the dove and the voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism. Or it could simply refer to God through his spirit, indicting and convicting those men right then and there that Jesus is God and then suppressing or denying that in their hearts, the truthfulness of Jesus' claims. Fourth piece of evidence that Jesus presents. And, and I know the temptations say this is the strongest piece of evidence. And if, quite frankly, if you can raise the dead and walk on water to heal the sick and feed thousands from a few loaves of bread and a few fishes, it's pretty dang strong evidence, okay? It is strong evidence. But Jesus himself had to defend this piece of evidence. Why? Jesus is referring both to his miracles and the authority of his teaching. The Jewish leadership attributed Jesus' supernatural powers to demonic forces or demonic deception. Now, Jesus knew that demonic forces could manifest supernatural power. We've got several examples of that in the Bible. One of them is the two magicians that opposed Moses. But Jesus pointed out to them and to us that Satan's not in the business of casting out demons out of people. He's in the business of putting demons in people. So Jesus says, Satan wouldn't be working against himself. I'm doing good in the Father's name. That's not what Satan does. Fifth piece of evidence, the Old Testament scriptures. Now this is powerful evidence if you're a first century Jewish leader because you know the book. In fact, you almost worship the book. There are many specific references in the 39 books of the Old Testament. We've looked at many, we'll look at a few more in just a few minutes. Like the ones that prophesy about his birthplace, his virgin birth, and much more. Sixth piece of evidence, really related to the fifth piece. He picks one of those Old Testament prophets out, the one he knows they respect the most, and he says, let's talk about Moses a minute. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The Sadducees only accepted those first five books. They didn't accept all the rest of the Old Testament. The Pharisees accepted the other 34 books. Clearly, any first century Jewish leader would have said the first five books of the Old Testament are the most important books of the scripture they had access to. So he picks out the author of those first five books, the one who received the law directly from God, the one who had an intense personal, experiential relationship with God. By the way, we ought to have an intense, personal, experiential relationship with God as well. But Moses had that in spades, so to speak. He's the one who freed the Israelites from slavery and led them through the wilderness. He tells them that Moses' words would stand as accusations against them someday and they did right then. And he says, you're on trial, not me. Jesus is claiming by this statement to be the God 
that Moses wrote about and encountered. Let me give you one specific example of what he's saying, and then I'll give you a bunch more, but let's start with this one, because this is a kind of unique one, and maybe you've never caught this. The phrase, the angel of the Lord, appears several times in the Old Testament. Almost every theologian says that's a reference to Jesus Christ. When the angel of the Lord appears to someone, it's the kind of the pre-incarnate Jesus showing up. You might not have caught this. In the famous encounter with, between God and Moses in the burning bush experience on the backside of the wilderness, Exodus 3, turn with me if you have a Bible, Exodus 3, verses 1 through 6. And I don't have that on the screen, I apologize. I meant to get it on here before I got up here and I forgot because I added that this morning. Exodus 3, 1 through 6, so you're going to have to listen to me read it if you don't have a Bible or have the Bible on your phone. You remember Moses is tending sheep, tending the flock of his father Jethro, verse 1. The far side of the wilderness, he comes to this mountain, and it says, there who appears the angel of the Lord. Jesus appears in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush did not burn up. So he thought, hey, I better go check this out. Loose paraphrase. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to, look, God called to him from within the bush. Wait a minute, the terminology just changed. We went from the angel of the Lord in the bush to God calling him from the bush. Are the two the same? Jesus says yes to those Jewish leaders. When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look at God called him and said, Moses, Moses, here I am. Don't come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, who's in the bush? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this point, Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. Jesus is saying this, that God in that burning bush is walking these hills of Palestine, and I'm the one speaking to you right now. A clear claim to deity. Other passages of scripture, there's a bunch. Let me just give you a list, and I'll briefly run through them. Genesis 3.15. We talk about this passage a lot. Now, why am I going all the way back to Genesis 3? That's not about Moses' lifetime. No, but remember, Jesus is saying, Moses wrote about me. Not only the encounter, but he, Moses was a prophet and a historian. Genesis 3.15 is the famous statement that Jesus makes to Satan, the serpent, Adam, and Eve. That someday a descendant of Eve would crush Satan's head which Jesus will do later through his crucifixion and resurrection. And Genesis 12, 3 is another one. Moses records in several places in Genesis promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he intended to bless all the peoples that were someday through a descendant of theirs. Jesus is saying, I'm that descendant. Now, these are just samples of what Moses wrote about Jesus. This isn't all of them. Genesis 22 Depending on our time, I may cover that section in detail, maybe not. Moses records a story about Abraham and Isaac that's probably the clearest Old Testament story pointing to the sacrificial and atoning death of Jesus. If you recall, 
Moses, I mean, excuse me, Abraham's going to take his son Isaac upon a mountain and attempt to sacrifice him to God. And God allows him to go through the whole thing and then stops him. And God provides the sacrifice. And if you don't understand metaphor and allegory, if you majored in math and not in English, you may not get it, but let me explain it to you, okay? God's just painting a picture with that story of what it's like to offer your one and only son as an atoning sin sacrifice. He hates child sacrifice. He never intends to go through with that, but he wants us to feel what he's going to feel like. The pathos of it, the emotion of it, the passion of it, and he's going to say some things that are prophetic. Well, look at a few verses in that text in just a few minutes. Then Genesis 49, 10, another passage. Moses records Jacob's blessing of his 12 famous sons. And then when he gets to Judah, he says this, and Jesus is a descendant in earthly terms of Judah. He's a ruler coming from Judah and a scepter coming to the one to whom it really belongs and the obedience of the nations will be his, referring to the Messiah. Clearly a reference to Jesus being the Messiah. Exodus 12, 1 through 15, another classic visual illustration pointing forward to the blood of the lamb that will justify us when we put our faith in it. Remember the Passover, what happens in Genesis 12, or excuse me, Exodus 12? God has tried and tried and tried and tried to release his people through signs and wonders. And Pharaoh keeps hardening his heart. God said he did it, and I don't understand any of that. But Pharaoh will not let him go. So God brings judgment, not on the Egyptian people. If you read it carefully, he brings judgment on the gods of Egypt, the demons that they're worshiping. He says, I'm going to show you who's God. And he kills the firstborn of every household in Egypt. Unless what? Unless the blood of a lamb appears over the doorpost of the home. And then judgment passes by. Clearly a reference to the Lamb of God whose blood saves those who put their faith in him from God's righteous judgment. It's all there if those Jewish leaders want to investigate it. And then a weird passage of scripture, another one from Moses, just another example. Numbers 1, 21, verses 8 and 9. Moses records the Israelites grumbling about the manna they had to eat. They're getting tired of the same old thing. And they're tired of this wilderness journey they've been on in general. And they're sick of Moses' leadership. God sends venomous snakes into their camp to bite them as judgment on their grumbling. Then God tells Moses to do something really strange. To make a bronze image of a snake and put it on a pole and hold it up in the, or I guess plant the pole in the middle of the camp. And anyone after they've been bitten by the snake that looks to the pole in faith will live. They won't die. Jesus references this later as pointing to his crucifixion and his ascension so that all who have been bitten by sin and look to him in faith are saved from the poison of sin, which will ultimately cause eternal death. All of this is in Moses' writings. Last passage I'll point out. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 22. The Jews made a lot of this passage. Moses predicts that a prophet will come in the future who will speak for God. 
The Jews and Jesus understood clearly this was a reference to the Messiah. Later, in fact, in chapter 6 of John, we'll get to it in a week or two, we'll see the Jews call Jesus that prophet. Now, the Jewish leadership wouldn't acknowledge it. But turn, if you have a Bible, to Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. Just for a minute, I'll expound it. I'm not going to tell the whole story of what happened on that mountaintop, but Abraham takes his son up there to sacrifice him at God's command. And right when he's about to kill him, Isaac notes, he doesn't know what's going on. He said, Daddy, the fire and the wood, they're here. This is verse 7. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? He's saying, Where, where's the lamb? We didn't bring anything to sacrifice. He doesn't know it's going to be him. And that's a prophetic question. And it's answered with the prophetic answer. Abraham says, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. That's about 2000 BC. Fast forward 2000 years. John the Baptist, Jesus' earthly cousin, he started his ministry probably just a few months before Jesus did his baptizing out in the wilderness. And he sees his distant cousin, who he really doesn't know, walking toward him. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he speaks another prophetic utterance in relation to this passage. And what does he say to his guys, his disciples? He turns to him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's all here, folks. In Moses' writings, all this prophetic stuff is here. They had access to it. You and I have access. It's powerful evidence that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. It's powerful evidence of Jesus' deity. In fact, when God does provide a lamb or a ram in the bushes for the sacrifice on that mountain about 4,000 years ago, what does Moses, excuse me, what does Abraham name the place? He calls the place the Lord will provide or the Lord will provide the sacrifice. Two applications from this morning's text. First one is a duh. And I know most of you have already done this, but I want to remind you. There may be some in the room here or not. While we're on this earth for a little while, God has given us the privilege of choice, of weighing the evidence and making our own decision about Jesus' clear claims to deity and to be the Savior of the world. So I'll go back to the original question. You get to decide what will you do with Jesus. You've been confronted with powerful evidence, not just this morning, but the last few weeks. And if you read this book over and over again, if you read it objectively, most of us have already decided or we wouldn't be here this morning that we believe John's account of the life of Jesus and we've embraced him as our personal savior. If you have not, I invite you to do that this morning. Find a member of the prayer team, find me, and we'll help you with that. If you've never been baptized as a sign of your commitment to him, as he modeled and as he commanded, I invite you to do that this morning. Two verses that come to mind. One we read a few weeks ago, the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God loved the people of this world so much that he gave his one and only son, like we looked at in that Genesis passage, 
That whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in his atoning sin sacrifice in the blood of the lamb will not perish but have eternal life. Romans 10, 9 and 10 and verse 13. Paul says it a little more, I guess, eloquently, maybe not quite as directly, maybe with a little more theological bite. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It's with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. And everyone, and everyone means everyone, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Second application. If you already belong to Jesus this morning, as most of you do, I want to remind you again of your commission to be one of his witnesses to those around you. You're invited to join the testimonies of God the Father, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, John the Apostle, the New Testament writers, the Old Testament writers, the prophets, Moses. Right before Jesus returns to heaven, Luke records in Acts 1.8 that he said this. Jesus said this is a prophetic statement I want you to be my witnesses, he tells his church, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Hometown, Jerusalem. Obviously, he moves further and further away with each statement. Individually, he also calls us to be, he said this in the Sermon on the Mount, salt and light to those around us. Some applications at New Heights. I'm going to promote salt and light training. If you've not done this, I beg you to do it. It made a huge impact on my life, on Lee's life, all of us that have taken this. It's changed the way I spend the hours of my days. I've learned how to have simple faith conversations with people. You don't have to try to close every deal, okay? But just give testimony that you know God, that you know Jesus, you have a supernatural worldview, that you speak to the air, that's called prayer, that, that you believe in God, and there's lots of ways to do that. And you will be amazed at what this will do for you. So that's coming up. That's the first specific application I can make. And your church, by the way, this church, has lots of ways for you to grow, to be better witnesses, to be a brighter light for Jesus, and to grow spiritually. Here's a list, if we can pull them up. Equip classes, the deeper group, free indeed, seven life habits of a Jesus follower workbook. Susie Eller and I wrote that, it's in the back. I'm unashamedly promoting that. I don't get any money from it, it goes to the church. If you don't have money to throw in that little bucket back there and you wanna take one, take it. You can pay later if you remember. There's a leader's guide back there too. About 400 folks have already gone through that. I encourage that. The Fount, Celebrate Recovery. I don't have time to explain all these things to you. Community groups, women's Bible studies, men's ministry, weekly meetings, and there's more. But you're not going to get the privilege of standing before Jesus and saying, hey, I went to church that didn't offer me any opportunities for spiritual growth, okay? The list is huge. I've never been involved in a church that had more opportunities for spiritual growth than this one. Paul wrote a letter this is, I've got something, I've got an assignment for you that's easier than any of that. It's, it's an easy one, okay? 
He wrote a letter late in his life to a pastor named Titus. Last, last point I'm going to make. I'll tell a quick little story to end it. And he, he sent this guy named Titus to the island of Crete to organize and instruct the small churches that were located there. And in chapter 3, the last chapter in this short little letter, he says the same thing three times to them. It's real simple. And this is my suggestion for you this morning in January of 2024. He says, tell the people, Titus, to devote themselves to just doing what's good. So if you're a Jesus follower, I encourage you to make it your ambition in 2024 to devote your thoughts, your words, your efforts, your influence, your free time, your homes, your cars, your boats, and your money to simply doing what is good. Write it on your day timer. Some of us are old school enough to still have those things, okay? I've got one on my desk. And, and, and I've wrote it on my day timer every week for the rest of the year. Write the simple statement. I will devote myself to doing what is good. Put prompts on your phones or on your computer. I call it proactive righteousness. Looking for ways every day to use your time, your talent, your influence, and your money to simply bless somebody that day. It may mean, like me, you have to constantly reorient your thought life to get the focus off yourself. I struggle with that. And I know some of you do. Quick little testimony. How I got help. A long time ago, about 20 years ago, with this from a friend. I told you a story a few weeks ago about some significant life change I made on a go find yourself adventure to Costa Rica in 2003. It's the reason I'm standing here before you today, the reason I'm at New Heights, the decisions I made that week. I didn't give you any specifics of what my friend Mike put us through that week. So let me give you one example because it relates to what I'm saying to you this morning. This is it, and I'm done. There was eight of us went on the trip, six guys and two gals, and that included our leader, Mike. And he divided us into groups of four when we arrived by plane late in the afternoon in San Jose, Costa Rica. And he turned us loose on the streets of San Jose with some objects to try to give away. Now, leading up to this, he asked us to do something before we got to San Jose, and that was to fast for 24 hours. I am not a good faster. I'm going to do partial fast on this 21 days of fasting. I, I do it every year. And that usually means skipping breakfast one day, okay? And, and, and I'm not belittling fasting. I've done it before. It's just really hard for me. But I fasted like Mike asked us to. So when I time I've got to San Jose, I'm starving. And it's all I can think about pretty much. I'm trying to listen to Mike. And he gives us some shoes a coat, some money, 30 or 40 bucks, and some food. And he puts us in groups of four and he says, I want you all to go around tonight, spend a few hours just walking the streets of San Jose. It's a large city, similar to any large city, other than I don't speak Spanish. And, and I want you to look for needs of people that you, these things can meet. Find someone you agree on to give the shoes to. Find someone you agree on as a group to give the money to. Find someone you agree on to give the coat to and the food to. 
It required us to ignore our own hunger pains and focus on someone else's need. A little reprogramming, if you will, to start the week off. Now, every day, right here in Fayetteville, Arkansas, we have the opportunity to do simple little things that I'm looking right now at people that do them all the time. Some of you have done it for me this week. Someone brought food to our house to do simple little things to testify to the power of God in your life. You're saying like that song we sang earlier, come and see what God has done. Come and see what I've become and am becoming. I'm trying to be salt and light today. That's my suggestion on how to apply this little talk, admonishing you and I to become better witnesses for Jesus. It's as simple as that in 2024. Let me pray for us. We'll move into our ministry time. The prayer teams are in the room. Come on up. This is our time for communion and ministry time. Lord Jesus, thank you for your testimony and the powerful witnesses that testify of your deity and your goodness and your value system. Father, encourage and convict each one of us today, tomorrow, the rest of this week, the rest of this year, the rest of our lives to be good witnesses for you as we walk through every area of our life. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.